So welcome to uh, episode two of the new TTT podcast. Paul isn't with us this week. It might have something to do with the first story on the agenda. So I'll come to B- I'll come to bees. Um, Bob Pierce, Bob Pierce, a well well renowned poster on TTT, uh, made some accusations, bees, about um, you being fully aware of the where the Premier League is going to end on the last podcast. Um, I have no idea about the veracity of these statements. I, I also <laughs> noticed Paul called you the Dejan Lovren of the 007s, um, and Dejan Lovren announced he's anti-vaxxer and he believes in David Icke. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I, these are just pieces I'm putting together. Now, are you talking to us from Mexico or is it London? Well, I can't really divulge my exact location, obviously, for security reasons. Um, yeah, it's not been a good week to be associated with Dejan Lovren, if there ever has been a good week. But, uh, yeah, those, uh, it wasn't great to hear that. But, um, yeah, no, it was quite funny to see uh, Bob thinking, saying that if I've kept the result of only connect to myself for a year, then I must surely know how um, the Premier League is all going to go. But I think if I had, I might have placed um, a bet or two by now on uh, on the outcome and uh, sort of made some money that way. So, um, no, I, I might have um, I might have written an article predicting the outcome using stats and stuff like that. I did do that. But uh, sadly, um, I can honestly say I have no further insight beyond that into into what might happen. Well, I knew you were bound to say this, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna ask you what the actual results were from the uh, stats prediction, quote unquote, that you did. What what was the final league table? How many points do we end up with? And uh, do we win? Do we win? Is it a record? <laughs> Surprisingly enough, Liverpool did manage to get over the line. Yeah, um, yes, based on the. Yes, exactly. That's the main thing. Um, yeah, based on the uh, on the stats and doing the predictions and everything, they're they're going to finish with um, 106 points and a plus 57 goal difference. Wow. Um, do we do we lose so, any more? Do we lose any other games? Or I, think, I guess we yeah, lose one. I'm afraid. Yeah, two one defeat at, at Man City, but oh. we'd already we'd already clinched the title. They had to give us a guard of honour. They were presumably. <laughs> Presumably quite fired up by uh, having to do that, and so yeah, they they, they took that one. But um, is, this pre- is this a prediction, bees, or a dream? <laughs> <laughs> it could be either. I mean, it's it's a it's a genuine prediction, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't been dreaming about it about football or anything like that while it's been gone. But I know some people who have. But uh, no, yeah, no, it's a it's a sort of genuine prediction. So. Um, that's the city god of honour that I'm dreaming about. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that that would have been nice. I mean, who yeah, knows what order the fixtures will even be played in now if yeah, it is happen. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. this this was all based on um, Liverpool beating Everton um, in that game, and then uh, City only drawing um, with Chelsea was the prediction, which was going to be um, on the 21st. So that evening, yeah. Liverpool were playing Palace, only needing a draw to win the league in this scenario, and they just won three 0 So, um, with the next game, next game at City after the international break, uh, yeah, they they had to do the whole guard of honour, and it, as I say, it obviously inspired them. But uh, Liverpool uh, won all the remaining games after that in this uh, scenario, so that took them to that takes them to 106 points. Oh. You'd be happy okay. with that, wouldn't you, Chris? I'll take that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this nineteenth. I'm just, you know, I don't, I almost, almost don't care how it comes. You know, <laughs> it would be nice if it actually came as a result of some more football. But you know, <laughs> I just want this nineteenth 
part <laughs> official official yeah yeah speaking of the uh serious issue of actually getting football back on the ground chris we've got we had a premier league statement last week um Saying yeah. that, saying that they they're considering the first tentative moves forward, but they'll only return to training and playing with government guidance under expert medical advice and after consultation with players and managers. Um, no decisions were taken as part of the shareholders' meeting, um, but they did exchange views um, on the project restart, is what it was called, um, and mm-hmm. the, pe- the people involved in this were the PFA, the LMA, the players and managers. Um, obviously the medical stuff. So what what did you make of that? Um, well, the first thought was um, one of fear that government advice may be the decisive factor on the whole thing. <laughs> but um, I, I think... Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I immediately you know, jettisoned any confidence I might have had in the outcome. But um, my thought really is that it seems that... Um, Lots and lots of headlines are coming through um, based on the opinions of or views of various sort of the involved parties, uh, and that appears to be shaped largely by the particular standing of their club at this given moment and whether it would benefit them to carry on or not carry on. <laughs> um, I noticed Aston Villa this morning are absolutely delighted to welcome back playing football. Um, as you might expect from a team that's currently in the bottom three. Yeah. Um, however, Brighton, who are just outside it, a couple of points outside it, um, are taking entirely the opposite view. And they see... Um, they're, they're, the integrity of the league seems to be um, a very popular thing at the moment, and it, but it seems like almost every um, suggestion, every option other than the one that suits your club seems to challenge the integrity of the league, is what I could say. Um, so whether there's, you know, annulment, cancellation, continuing um, closed doors, neutral venues, not neutral venues. Um, this very day, in fact, the Premier League, um, I think the LME, actually, the LMA chief executive has said that the Premier League season could be cancelled if clubs don't back neutral venues. So clearly the LMA are sort of angling towards the neutral venue solution, which Brighton came out against. Um, they, they've said that, what did you actually say? That, um, the government, as they haven't already, we were making it clear that home matches with densely populated stadia really puts into question whether social distancing rules can be adhered to, put it mildly. Um, but he's asked if a vote... Sorry, it says if a vote against neutral venues would lead to the season's cancellation. He said, yes, I think that probably is correct. Um, and again, there's this distinction between cancellation and annulment. Of course, which are, you I know, which just a crucial distinction. I guess they'd just do it on a points per game basis, then, wouldn't they? Yeah, you would assume so. Um, yeah, to make up for the fact that some teams have played more than others. Um, but um, Aston Villa have got a fair preponderance of home games left. Yeah. Six. So they, yeah. So it's in their interests for for the games to be played at their own stadium. And I think Brighton also have five out of nine at home, although they are against Liverpool, Man City, Man United, and Arsenal. Um, so you know, you wonder how many points they would expect to take from that lot anyway. But um, yeah, I think it's it's confusing the issue constantly, almost a daily sort of 
feed of um, another slant on this, and they're nearly always coming from a, you know, a point of personal interest for the club involved. It is. Um, 14, what's the vote? What's the procedure to get this passed? Is it is it 14 out of 20, I think, is the... I is think it, it normally is on most issues. I don't know whether this one is an exception, but I think it's normally 14, isn't it, on, on I, most I, um, I heard I heard that 13... This is um, discussed on the... I think it was the Ornstein podcast or something, and he's got a, the inside jockey. He seems to think that there was 13 clubs in favour... There were six clubs against six clubs in favour of what? In, in, in favour in favour of the neutral venues and carrying on with the project restart oh, okay. as, as is stated. Um, yeah. Most of those were in the top twelve or thirteen in the league, and then there were six clubs against. Most of them in a relegation battle, and then the one club with a deciding vote as it stood and hadn't made a deciding vote was Spurs. Spurs were the fourteenth okay. club, and apparently they they had uh, a chance to. To get to to get a, a cautionary pass of fourteen of agreement, but we don't know. I think those are the dynamics, though, aren't they? They're going to have to get okay. it passed. They're going to have to get it passed. But it's interesting whether Spurs will get the deciding vote or not. See, as far as I see, there are, there are six teams really in danger of relegation as the table stands right now, and I can't imagine why the three that are actually in the relegation positions right now would have the same view as the three that are just above it and currently safe. Indeed, you know, you know they can't be on the same side. <laughs> Surely, no, you would, you, yes. of course. But I, th- I guess there's got to be some give at some point, isn't there? Or else oh, the whole, yeah. the whole yeah, industry yeah. will just collapse. Yeah, indeed. And there's individual players saying that they're scared and they don't feel they should be put in this position. And you know, Aguero has said it, and I think Glenn Murray from Brighton said it. And, one or two others are sort of chipped in on that score. Um, and, you know, you assume that there must be a, uh, you know, a rigorous regime of testing and that before before they start and after each game. And, um, uh, you know, we've seen already in Germany there are 10, 10 players currently with, with um, COVID-19 infections. Um, and they're due back to a month before we are. So you know, um, you know, there are issues involved. Clearly, bees. Um, yeah, one one of the clear issues with this project restart, as Chris highlighted about the Bundesliga with ten confirmed positive cases, is once we do restart and players start testing positive again, is isn't it just going to throw the whole thing into chaos? Yeah, I would think so. They'd have to shut it all down again if uh, if that were to happen, which which seems fairly inevitable. Um, I mean, the longer it goes on, my my gut instinct is that the season is going to be cancelled and they're not going to play the remaining games. Now, whether that means it's declared finished and and the positions are as they are, or if it's just completely null and void, then uh, that you know I don't know about that. But yeah, the longer it drags on, I think they they are going to bring it to a conclusion because they they need it to be draw to a conclusion so they can start the next season. Now it seems mad to start the next season if this one isn't done but then if the champions league and those things start up then it kind of has to move on to the next season so um i think there could be yeah a situation where they just don't come to an agreement particularly if it takes 14 out of 20 teams as you were saying and and they may just have to call it off in in some form or another i mean 
not to be too cynical about it, and you know, I have no issue with clubs having their own interests at heart. They absolutely should. Um, but you know, the likes of Brighton, just as an example, I don't think they're doing this, but they could effectively filibuster the whole thing and just drag it out until it reaches a point where they basically have to end it in whatever form that takes. And, and teams like Brighton won't really mind if it's null and void or if it's declared finished because of of where they are in the league. Mm. And obviously, if if it is declared the season is finished but legitimate, then obviously the likes of Bournemouth and Aston Villa will presumably appeal, so it, it could get very messy. But I, I, personally, I just think the longer it drags on, then, then the, the games aren't going to be played. But I, I hope to be wrong on that. That's just the way I sort of feels to I mean, me. My, my thought was with that news today that the, premise, you know, that the LMA chief said that the league could be cancelled if clubs don't back neutral venues. To me, that sounded like... Um, like signposting exactly what you need to do in order yeah. for that to be achieved. You know, oh, thank you very much. That's a very handy tip. We'll uh, we'll follow that. You know, so so who's going to back neutral venues now? You know, the clubs that <laughs> you know, Brighton won't be. But sorry, of course, Brighton will be. Sorry. Um, yes. But yeah. Of course, there's there's the other issue with the television money and and what yeah. happens with that if the games don't take place. That presumably has to be all paid back and that's obviously not a small amount of money so um no it isn't um this um, 33 million dollars is what the new york times come confirm okay. I, I, can't, I can't do a in-head conversion rate there because uh, no. i have no idea what the pounds worth anymore but no. <laughs> yeah. um, no it's a it's it's a substantial amount of money that they can't afford to pay back if they've got no for, fans... For broadcasters, presumably. Yeah, for broadcasters, yeah. which is understandable uh, because if they've got no games to show, they've cancelled the season 75% of the way through. This is why I don't think null and void can happen because if that happens, they have to pay it all back. So it would just be a proportion, I'm guessing. Um, the amount that they've paid for the games that are left, that's what they'd have to pay back at the moment. Um, so... It, they just can't do it. If if you've got to pay back broadcasting money and you've got no fans in your stadium, it's basically going to... But how can you have commercial deals when there's no football going on and there's no yeah, fans to it? So your commercial revenue could just dip the contract details in that. I don't see how teams can see the bigger picture in terms of football as a as a business, as a, as a massive, huge industry, without going, oh, we might get relegated and... And that's and that's the running interest. It seems self-defeating and sabotage on your own team. Yeah, I mean the the, you know, the refund issue may not obviously just apply to broadcasters, but to to fans themselves. Um, you know, I've mentioned that there's this issue certainly in Liverpool about season ticket holders. If in, in the event of annulment, this is not not cancellation. In the event of annulment. The argument is, or well, in that case, the season did not exist, and therefore I've paid for games that didn't exist. Therefore, I want not just the games that we haven't yet played refunded. I want the entire season and all my travelling costs and all the away games and all the travelling costs for those. You know, so to start totting that up, you know, now the club, I don't suppose any club's going to be in a position to to <laughs> meet that request. But it, you know, there are. Groups in Liverpool which are prepared to go to court over this if if annulment is declared, which I don't think it will for the reasons Daniel that you just said. But um, you know the, the broadcasters' issue is not going to be the only one. Of course, <clears throat> there's, there's so there's so many. I just think 
broadcasters who have funded all these sports and, and now seem to have a, be a key stakeholder in it for that very reason. The players <laughs> themselves are getting paid from our mm. our and broadcasters' money, which is essentially the same thing. Um, <clears throat> if they've got no sport to show, they they've they've paused subscriptions for fans. So you don't yeah. have to pay for a sports subscription at the moment. Um, but if there's no sport for such a long period of time, they, I think there has to be a start-up of sport within the guidelines that the government might set. And now, hopefully the government set the guidelines based on what they see happening in Germany. So amateur, yeah. amateur German sport is due to return in the, in the next few weeks, um, which is amazing. But it's going to be with strict rules. And, and I think that's the way sport's going to go. It has to go. If it doesn't go, then we're going to look at we're going to be looking at a whole different sporting landscape, aren't we? Bees, when it comes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's already talks about the whole of next season being played behind closed doors, which is quite a depressing prospect to say the least. Um, you know, the whole football without fans is nothing thing. I'm sure you know most people would agree with, and it and it, and it would be very flat to watch an entire season. Um, played behind closed doors and but again obviously that's going to be that it's not just the sort of enjoyment element but I mean that's going to have a, a huge um, financial impact I mean not as much as, as the TV but um, lots of the um, incomes of the Premier League team still comes from like match day revenues um, I think it's around about 13% of um, Premier League income comes from match day uh, revenue it was something like 700 million i think last season 700 million pounds so even if it's not as big a proportion as it obviously once was at least at the top level i mean that's a, that's a huge amount of money to to go without um if if they're going to play the entire season behind closed doors but but right now it, it does sound like a realistic um possibility that that's what might happen yeah, Paul said on the last podcast that Liverpool's was around 15%, and I thought it was closer to 30 but we, I've got the Swiss Dragon Ball figures here for the top six, and Manchester City's is only 10%, and that's the lowest in terms of the proportion of matchday revenue to total. Um, Liverpool is 16%, alongside Chelsea's 15 Spurs and Man United at 18 and Arsenal's is the biggest, 25%, 24% of their matchday revenue. So if you, you're taking away a big chunk of of revenue, but it's not only that, is it? Because your commercial deals are based on the benefits that they mm-hmm. get when the fans are in the ground and when the things mm-hmm. are being sold. And so, what happens to them? And then, if the broadcasters are, uh, are broadcasting all the games in the Premier League without fans, does that are they not going to say, "Well, I want a significant reduction on this because this is not what I signed up for." Absolutely. I mean, it's not yeah. the same product, is it, really? I mean, a, t- a terrible word to use for football, but that is the nature of the business of it these days. It's not the same product that they've bought if it's empty grounds, matches played like a sort of training game. Um, it's absolutely not the same thing. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's another one of many hurdles. I mean, I suppose it's easy to say, oh, the whole season behind closed doors. I guess they could start behind closed doors and who knows where we are in, you know, six months time or whatever at this point nobody can say can they maybe fans would be allowed back during the season but yeah I mean if they start behind closed doors then clearly there's a possibility that that could continue Mm. um, sort of throughout the season the whole season 
Yeah, some sides will make a point that uh, you know, we missed a crucial match without having our supporters behind us. We might have won it, and you know, there'll be all kinds of, um, you know, it's, I think it's going to have to be throughout the season or, or not at all. To be honest, I, I can't see them sort of bringing it in halfway through. And who knows when next season is going to start anyway? Um, Can you imagine? Well, I think Spurs, count out August. Spurs fans, I think. Spurs fans playing Arsenal. The, the home yeah. game, the home games be, being played behind closed doors at Spurs, and then they travel to the Emirates for the return fixture, and there's a lot mm. of Arsenal fans. Quite, right. quite. Yeah, you know that sort of thing. It's, it, you know, it's fraught. <laughs> um, on the on that same subject that we just talked about, it's just been posted on our site. So it looks like Villa, Brighton and West Ham are going to oppose neutral grounds at next week's EPL meeting on Project Restart. Well, two of those are not actually in the bottom three at the moment. Villa are. Um, obviously, the, you know, what we said about what the boss of the LMA said, without neutral grounds, the season will be cancelled. And it makes you wonder whether, you know, the big six need to sort of throw their weight around a bit and remind them that the bulk of the attraction of the EPL on TV is is not uh, Brighton versus Bournemouth. You know. <laughs> Can you make that um, one go down well? You know. it? Well, it isn't, is it? You know, no, it's true, though, isn't look it? At the figure, look at the viewing figures, you know. Um, if you just look at the, the figures that certain games attract, then it's, it's you know, we know who it is. You know. Really interesting uh, dynamic was raised in the New York Times article about the fact that Richard Scudamore, had he been in charge now, they think he would have got it done and organised because he seemed to have a control over what... Because of the big, the biggest the biggest thing in the past, the biggest dynamic was Man United and Liverpool who wanted more money for the big clubs because that's, that's in their interest. But yeah. he, he managed to like kind of sell it to the lower clubs that you know they can have the same amount of a proportion yeah but, but yeah. then but then if you're on tv more you get more and that kind of thing yeah. he says the new guy who's come in i can't is off the top of my head i can't remember his name but he says he hasn't got that kind of power at the moment he hasn't got that ear to the club so it's kind of all the clubs are trying to think for themselves when in the past richard scudmore has managed to get them to think as a collective as a Premier League and I think if they don't think as a collective for the Premier League then we might not see the Premier League as we knew it we might not even see one because Rick Parry was saying that they have to distribute the money from the Premier League now back down to the back down through the divisions and get rid of parachute payments because there's clubs there that are just not going to exist anymore Rochdale were, no. talk, Rochdale were talking about mothballing themselves until fans are allowed back in because they just can't exist without them. Yeah, absolutely. The lower down the league you go, I think, the more reliant they are on, on match day income. You know, because they haven't, haven't got very much else. So there's a lot of clubs, I think, lower down. I've made this point on the site this week that will will there be four divisions left when, when all this finishes? Yeah, it's unlikely. You know. I read something um, they're thinking of making um, League One and League Two regional, kind of like it used to be quite a long time yeah. ago. I think they had Division Three or Four, the, North and South, didn't they? They did. Yeah, they did. Yeah. 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 And, it, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it, what real need is there for sort of Carlisle to play Plymouth on a Tuesday night, or, or that, you know, as one example, you know, that you know that you'll get more fans in the grounds um, if all the teams are a bit sort of closer together. So I, I can see that as a potential route to kind of keep the lower leagues 
going, or at least helping them to, to sort of keep going. It, it does make sense to go along a geographical route. But um, yeah, I wouldn't blame Watchdale with that. I hadn't heard that, but that probably makes a lot of sense for them to do that, to just sort of say, well, until we can have fans, we're not going to sort of exist, as it were. I think, um, what about, I heard this idea posted by, I can't remember which low league chairman it was either, but social distanced attendance at football grounds. So rather than say you've got a 10,000 capacity, you only have 5,000 in and that and those gaps are the people. Now, the logistics <laughs> and the practicalities oh, <laughs> of, of having, half, yes, of- yes, half the fans, if you score, you're gonna be. Well, I, was, I was thinking about this with the. It's gonna be all sorts of you know, viral infections. I was thinking about this for I sit in the cop, and if you actually did, you know, impose um, the two meter rule, um, there's gonna be five empty seats either side of me, but there's got to be several rows behind and several rows in front as well. You know, so there's yeah. a whole radius of two metres around me. So I reckon the couple only hold about 500. And we'll all be sitting there miles apart from each other. And it's going to be the eeriest thing when we score. <laughs> even, if they, even if they brought it in, though, I mean, which they won't, but even if they no. did, I mean, people are still going to meet in the pub over the road beforehand, aren't they? I mean, exactly, it's sort of, exactly, yeah. You can, you can try and distance people in the ground, but they're still going to arrive together as you say, celebrate together, probably go for a drink yeah, afterwards. Yeah. You know, it, it's just it, it's just so pointless to even think about that. But, you know, I appreciate people have got to be creative in these unprecedented times or whatever, but I think that's a bit of a mad one. I like the singing, though, as well. <laughs> You'll never sing alone, you know. <laughs> Try and get a, start, a song started. <laughs> I um, Just 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 on the no fans issue, I just want to bring a comment in by um, David, or Imagine Clip, as, you, as you're known on the site. And he said, yeah, yeah. he said um, it's interested in listening, to, not just to you lot, but loads of people talking about how dull the behind closed door matches are going to be, like training matches. And he, he says that watching and enjoying a lot of youth games um, with, with, with just a few scattered spectators, he's a bit bemused by it will be automatically unexciting or something so he's saying of course fans matter but he also says it might be fascinating the novelty of it the first time it's ever happened the fact that we just get to watch something again um are those not are those not fair (laughs) points yeah i think he's right about saying you know you can enjoy a a youth team game or whatever um but i suppose i suppose it's 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 the whole expectation, isn't it? You would expect there not to be many people at a, you know, youth team game. And it's just what you're used to with regards to the, to the first team games. I mean, I suppose we could reach a point where it kind of becomes the new normal for a, for a time. Um, And it, and it certainly would be interesting. I mean, it's not like if it is going to be a whole season or a huge chunk of one, then we would find out what it seems like. But obviously all you can think about is, is what it feels like now. And now it just feels like it would be terrible, but yeah, yeah, I mean, he's right. You can, you can enjoy reserve games and um, youth team games that don't have many people there, but I think you expect there not to be many people there. So it's, you're not expecting to enjoy it for the atmosphere. You're expecting to enjoy it because of what happens on the pitch, and obviously that's still going to be the case with the top-level teams. But it, uh, it, it just—it will just seem weird and wrong, won't it? But we may get used to it. Would it not yeah, be fascinating? To. To, would it not? I, I know there was talk that Sky are going to try and impose some kind of CGI uh, 
<laughs> element to it. Now, I, I would quite like to hear the players. I know it might not be good enough for three o'clock on a Saturday because of the swearing, but I would love to hear what the players say to each other. Would that not be something <laughs> new, something we'd never heard? Unless you're, unless you're on the touchline at the ground. Well, it would. Um, it, would it would introduce a new element, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'd I'm love sure to hear. I'd love to hear Mane or Salah swearing at Trent or something for not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why I the? Just ma- <laughs> I just made the run, my good fellow. <laughs> Is that your Salah impression? Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? I've been, I've been working, I've been, you know, whiling away the hours. Um, bees, <laughs> uh, bees on the. On the next point, there's a home field advantage. You posted an article in the in the Slack group about um, Infogol, was it? Who did a? Do you want to give us an outline of what that entails and whether it, there is such a thing? Yeah, it was basically it's um, Mark Taylor, who I know from uh, from Infogol, um, wrote an article about home field advantage and obviously with a view to if matches are going to be played behind closed doors and things like this, um, and. Home field advantage used to be a lot greater thing um, than it than it is now. Um, supposedly, um, he's done all the research in the late 80s. Um, playing at home was worth an average of 0.45 goals per game to the home side. And now it's less than, than 0.3. Um, quite why that is, I don't think anybody can, can quite understand. I mean, I suppose, um, you know, travel is uh, is probably less of an issue than it used to be and things like that. Um, and obviously uh, the pitches tend to be better. So whether that sort of levels things up slightly um, or maybe it doesn't, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, 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 it has become less of a thing. Um, but uh, let me just scroll down. Um... I just know that a lot, of, a lot of fans, particularly Liverpool, but other clubs as well, think and are convinced and the manager and the players are convinced that the fans at the stadium with the noise that they make and the atmosphere they generate have an impact, have a tangible, causal, measurable impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose if you looked at it, you know, club by club, perhaps there are, obviously that's just an average, perhaps there are sort of greater variances and obviously um, lots of teams play on the sort of 12th man angle, um, Liverpool perhaps more than most, um, but whether there's actually anything in it, I'm not sure. I mean, um, he says uh, he says that travel and familiarity are the major contributors. So you know, playing at home, being familiar with your surroundings, knowing where everything is, just that, just the routine of it um, is 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 possibly the major contributing factor these days to to sort of home advantage. I mean, I suppose with the fans, I mean, we we might be about to. We might be about to see if there's a season with behind closed doors. We'll actually get some sort of proper data to look at on uh, how much difference yeah. it makes. Um, I mean, it, it seems wrong to think that it doesn't have an impact. But then, um, I don't know. I don't know what players would say. I mean, I, I think they sort of say you can't hear sort of individual insults from the crowd or whatever, but you sort of get the general mood of the, the stadium. I mean, you can tell when you're watching a match, even on TV, you know, the, the crowd and the fans are often in um, sort of in alignment, be that in a good way or a bad way sometimes, you know, when, when, the, when the stadium gets a bit nervous or whatever. So, um, 
it, 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 it is hard to, to sort of figure out exactly what, what causes it, but um, I, it, that would certainly be fascinating to find out if, it, if we do play behind closed doors. I mean, do players feel different when they're away? Or do they, do they feel they're in sort of alien, hostile territory? And, you know... Um, as opposed to the home team, who are very much on their own, you know, on their own turf, literally. Um, do, do, do players actually feel it, or do, do, you know, being experienced pros, does it, you know? Thierry, Thierry Henry, Chris, um, famously said that when he was at Highbury, they could make passes or shots or free kicks and things based on the sight lines. Because they, they they knew mm-hmm. the ground so well, and he says when they first went yeah. to the Emirates that you don't have those like instant intangible guides mm. that your brain uses because it's yeah. not it's not the same surroundings anymore. Um, and he said that was a so the, so he said Arsenal players essentially went from having that kind of tiny percentage of advantage over the the opposition to not having it anymore when they first, when they moved to the Emirates now. You can't really, yeah. you can't really measure that, can you? Um, no, uh, <laughs> but Not really, it's, it's interesting that professionals use that kind of thing. So even the timing of a run to be offside or not yeah. Yeah. would would rely on your familiarity with with lines along the ground. Yeah, you know, that's I hadn't thought of that aspect. Mm. Really? Well, I suppose as well. Now I'm thinking about it. I mean, there's different pitch sizes and things like that. Must have. Mm. Maybe a negligible impact, but if you're playing at Anfield every week, you know how much space you've got and, and things like that. And then when you go away from home, obviously the, the size of the pitch varies. And maybe it's not much, but it's just one of those little things yeah. that probably has an impact of some sort. And you know, then you factor in the home fans and the travel for the away team and all these sorts of things. And they probably all just do a little sort of 2 or 3% that, that perhaps adds up or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that from Thierry Henry. That's really interesting. No, I didn't know. Mizgan wrote a piece about this, didn't he, on the site about pitch size. He did. Um, earlier this year or, yeah, late last year. I can't remember when. But, yeah, um, but I hadn't thought about that familiarity with the surroundings. In, you know, as you say in Henri's um, quote, hmm. So maybe it's it's not the fans that give the advantage. It's it's as he said as well. It's you know it's other stuff, familiarity, and you know the awaiting, perhaps feeling like they're you know in in unfamiliar, hostile territory. But Chris, you've you've been you've been at some of the most, if not all, apart from the recent final, um, of all of the moments <laughs> in Liverpool's. Um, I got as far as Madrid. Oh, yes, I know. And that, that is a podcast for the future. Um, but so you you've seen these moments when the crowd is supposed to have an impact. You've been there. You, you were one of them. What? Can, mm. can can you give us any examples where you tangibly thought the crowd influenced the players in the game? I can't, I know that's such a tough question, but just any moments it, it, where you thought that was that was a thing. Well, there's one that is always quoted, and I'm not sure that it's right, is the, you'll never walk alone at half-time in Istanbul. I'm not convinced that that was a factor. Um, you know, we've seen that song a few times over the years. And so, at half-time, I thought the, the rendition was particularly half-hearted, I have to say, <laughs> which, would have, which would have reflected exactly how we felt. Um, I love that. Know. So which do you think had the most influence on that game, Rafa's tactical switch? Or the fans, as you'll never walk alone at halftime. Oh, nothing. It just nothing. It it just it just happened. <laughs> it just happened. So I it's think been, it's been built up. 
I think so. I think the myth has been sort of embroidered around this. But uh, quite frankly, we got a goal back. And at that point, the equilibrium starts to shift. You know, um, one side sort of has a first few frissons of anxiety and the other one gets a bit of encouragement and think, oh, maybe it's not completely over after all. So they get a little bit of a boost. Um, Is the same dynamic uh, happening with the fans? Um, yes. Um, yes, it was. There was. And once we'd got level, there was no way we were going to lose. It was just, you know, once we've got out of this, you know, we, we are going to win this, whatever happens, you know. We just are meant to win this. I don't believe in that, by the way. Um, not meant to win anything, but it just felt, we just felt untouchable after after we'd got to 3 all. Even so, that Shevchenko chance. <laughs> so he won't score. He can't score because that's going to ruin the narrative. No. no that's, yeah. <laughs> and there's, when it came to penalty, I'm sure you were thinking that clearly at the time, Chris. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and when it came to penalties, it never entered my head we wouldn't win that. You know, it just, it just felt. There did seem like a wall of belief sort of set in um, later on, but not at half time. No. Not when they. You'll never walk alone. Um, people talk about the Dortmund game when you know something happened, and the Dortmund manager made some reference to you know the Anfield effect, and you know sometimes strange forces are at work. And, <laughs> um, that was after but, the game, though, wasn't it? That was after the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the ones that you, I think, you've quoted in the past: Saint Etienne, Chelsea, Chelsea. Yeah, um, Saint Etienne was, um, yeah. Yeah, that 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 felt though it could have <laughs> it could have actually um, been something to do with the crowd. It, it felt irresistible, you know. Um, it's, it's when team and crowd sort of seem to harmonise, you know, that it seems to become a a, a difficult obstacle for the other team. <laughs> it's, it's not so much Liverpool. It's it's I think it's the effect on the other team that's yeah that's the crucial one. You know, John Terry said, didn't he, after the, the Chelsea game, the semi-final, it's nothing like it, and I actually did feel slightly frightened. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that possibly players and managers believe, so it almost has an impact by default. Like, I was just mm. sort of sat thinking, didn't um, wasn't there a thing like um, Bill Shankly would get Tommy Smith to basically clatter somebody if the crowd was a bit quiet just to wake mm. them up? That's right, yeah. yeah. So they obviously, I think, you know, that sort of thing suggests they do sort of believe in the power of the crowd. And if you believe in it, then it, well, whether it becomes a thing or not, but you're kind of making it more likely to become a thing, whether it is or it isn't, if you see what I mean. You're kind of taking something from it, some kind of positive mental energy yeah. from it. If uh, you're getting a few percent extra in your legs as a result of it, you know, you sort of give them wings almost. And it's having, you know, a couple of percent in the opposite direction effect on the other team. Then the combined difference is maybe just just enough to tilt a balance, you know. Um, I, know I, I, I think it's genuinely fascinating. Exactly what you've just said there, be is the fact that can play, can a crowd, a crowd noise, a chance, the atmosphere impact a player? Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to measure, but the fact that some managers may manage to buy into it, and they happen to be some of the most successful managers, 
particularly in Liverpool's history, they've bought into that, that the crowd is a factor. It's huge. They use it all the time. They use it with the players. They use it with the fans in the press conferences. Klopp, when he first came, doing the line that we did against Barcelona, against West Brom after a draw. Absolutely yes. ridiculed for it. But that's using it, isn't it? That's yeah. understanding that there's more going on here than we can measure. There's more going on here that yeah. is something that the stats guys that we employ who are amazing can, can tell me about. There's a relationship here with these fans and we've just done something that I don't think we've done so far. I think the crowd had an impact on this game and I'm going to thank them like this. Yeah. And did you see the the, um, the video behind the scenes for Barcelona before the second leg? No. And Messi doing his speech in the Danfield dressing room. Wow. He was aware. He, he, he instilled fear into all of them. Basically, <laughs> go on. What did, can you I, I'd, I'd have actually—I don't think I would, I'd have actually feigned injury and missed the game after his speech. Um, <laughs> quite, quite the opposite of the sort of uplifting, come and get them lads sort of thing that you might expect. He was saying this place is going to be really difficult for us. You know, the crowd's going to be a problem, and you know, and uh, <laughs> he, so, so why only only so Suarez, the best, the best them, player of all time. Yeah, he's yeah, saying that to his team when they've got a three yeah. 0 lead. But if that doesn't tell you how, if you're if you're a Barcelona player watching the best player of all time, and you, you're listening to what he's saying, and he is oozing anxiety. He was. He, he looked it. His eyes were sort of like fear. You know. Can't it's... help us watch. It's three 0 up for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> And you've got me. <laughs> and you've got me. Uh, I don't suppose Suarez was that bothered, but uh, it, the general look around the dressing rooms—they look—they look scared. They look beaten. Yeah, it wasn't—it wasn't the greatest piece of captaincy I've ever seen. I have to say. That's just that, if that doesn't, you know, trigger, especially if knowing what happened. That, this yeah. does, that it does have an influence. It's going to be fast. Like Ted Knutson was talking about home field advantage, and I advise you to go and have a look at the thread he posted today. But he's just said, for those who um, think it's unbelievable that we don't know more about home field advantage, it's not something you get to pull apart in lab settings, and it's compromised by a huge number of human factors. The fact that we're now gonna now might be able to see a huge sample of games behind closed doors is lab settings. It's basically lab settings. Yeah. So we're, yeah, go it is, we're going yeah. to have a comparative uh, data set, aren't we, Bees? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we will have some evidence of of what it's like and what difference it makes, um, yeah. which which will be interesting. But. Um, yeah, as we said, just so many, so many sort of factors go into that. I mean, as well with, um, just as we were talking about the Barcelona game, uh, which is always fun to talk about, uh, they they will have obviously had a hangover from what happened to them at Roma the See, the year before. Um, year tomorrow, by the way, please. Is that right? A year tomorrow. Yeah. Or maybe a year so. yesterday when this comes out. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, around about a year. Yeah, edit that down. Uh, <laughs> but obviously, yeah, <laughs> Barcelona would have been carrying the mental baggage of um, their defeat in Roma the year before, and and sort of worrying about the same thing happening. And that's not necessarily anything to do with you know the crowd at the, at Anfield. That's them thinking, well, we were whatever it was. 
was I think four two up or something, and then they 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 yeah. went out. So and then have probably figured that Liverpool were were stronger team than Roma, and it, you know, and then it starts as soon as Liverpool score after about yeah. five ten minutes, whatever it was, they're going to be thinking, here we go again. And it's the crowd is going to be playing its part, but it's just one of many sort of little sort of factors, yeah. I would I would think. That sort of backs your theory, Bees, to be honest, about, you know, whether it is or not isn't the point. It's whether they believe that it is. <laughs> and well, yeah. They, they, they did. They looked like they did in that dressing room. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, obviously, um, long-time readers of Tompkins Times will will know that the, the sort of concept of momentum has long been um, uh, debated on the site about whether it, whether it can exist or whether it doesn't. But it's another thing that if you read enough interviews, players and managers believe it exists, mm. which doesn't make it exist. But if they believe in it, then it's obviously giving, it does, yeah. it's, well, exactly. And it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's giving them a mental boost, believing that they've got momentum, whether they realistically have, or if they haven't, they, they believe that they do. And so to some extent they do, or at least that's how I view it. But mm. So again, it's another thing, and you know, momentum shifts between in games. I mean, if, if Barcelona had scored first in that second leg, they'd have With probably a big chance. They had big chances. Yeah, they mm-hmm. had chances to score, and if they score and Liverpool need five, Liverpool probably don't get five. I mean, you know, oh, well, they probably four. don't get four. You would think, mm-hmm. but they did. But you know, it, it's just the whole sort of swinging between um, different sort of viewpoints and mental states. If Barcelona score. Anfield probably goes pretty quiet and they perhaps see it out. And then it's like, well, the fans didn't contribute much, but it's, you know, it's obviously this is all sort of hypothetical and ifs and buts. But yeah, just so so many factors to sort of take into account for, for home field advantage. But uh, yeah, I think the mental state could possibly be even more important than the fans as much as they probably feed into it. Yeah. Chris, um, on to the final and I know possibly your favourite topic with the um, rounding off the transfer gossip that you do. You hit hell of your uh, <laughs> sideways snipes at some of the nonsense that comes out <laughs> and the valuations of yeah. players. But they, 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 to, <laughs> to keep me sane. <laughs> there was a, an article in there was an article in the Financial Times today looking at um, the KPMG group who seem to think that 10 billion euros will be wiped off the value of European players during um, this pandemic, they, they've also managed to, I don't know how they do this, but they've managed to come up with a chart of players and how much value they're going to lose. Um, <clears throat> so they, they seem to think that, say, for Mbappe, 225 million, he was worth pre, pre-COVID, pre um, 175 million with games played behind closed doors. And if they don't play any games, it goes, drops again to 160-odd. Now... Okay, one more example is Mohamed Salah, apparently valued at 150-odd pre-COVID, 125 uh, with games behind closed doors and maybe 110. Now, I just still think these figures are unbelievably high still. I do. I absolutely do, yeah. Um, I don't think they take account at all of, of the enormity of what's likely to happen with prices. Um, this morning's report was from Napoli, who basically are holding to pre, pre-coronavirus valuations for a couple of their players, one of which was linked with us, Koulibaly. Um, he was 95 million before and he's still 95 now. So um, Napoli seemed to be untouched by, by coronavirus, but everybody else might be, um, including the buyers, crucially. 
So I would be amazed if, if, if values only fell that much. I don't quite know how they've arrived at those figures anyway. Um, but I think the effect will be colossal. I think there'll be excess of supply and a shortage of demand, basically. And with all the effects that we all know that has on, on market prices. So without knowing when it will open, and I'm throwing this question at you without you doing any particular kind of research on about it, but what do you think the transfer record price will be over this summer for one player, the summer coming? I suppose it depends who who actually goes. If Mbappe were to go, it probably would be him. Um, it would surprise me if anybody goes for 100 million. I'd be staggered if anyone goes for 100 million. Who's going to have 100 million to spend on a player now? True, but would would PSG sell a prize asset who was worth 250 maybe for 75 or 50 million? Well, my personal a, opinion, I think 50 million would be the top level of transfer fee paid. You're probably right. Um, but I don't think any big names will move. It's the same thing, though, with house prices. You, you know, your house might might go for a fraction of what you thought it was, but what you're buying is also a fraction of what it was going to be. So it kind of levels itself out in that sense. You know, you might have been expected to spend 200 million on players and you only spend 50, but you still get what will used to be 200 million worth of players for that. You know, it's I just think that the, what you sell and what you buy, will, the value of both will have dropped. So it'll kind of cancel itself out in that sense. I think in a way Mbappe is probably a not a great example purely because of like how PSG are funded. They they probably yeah, don't, they true. probably don't need to sell him at a massive discount. Um, they you know I but I sort of agree with what Daniel uh, said. I'm, I'm not sure there's going to be that many um, big players moving this summer because it no. just doesn't really seem sort of very practical. But um, I don't know if you saw recently a thing from um, Steve Parrish, the Crystal Palace guy. And um, he had quite, he wrote quite an interesting thing about um, how football is going to survive going forward. And the thing that stood out is saying like Premier League clubs owe approximately 1.6 billion in transfer payments already to other clubs, wow. which is the most of any league. And you think, well, okay, so quite a lot of that will be within the Premier League teams buying off each other, but obviously it's, that debt's not going to go away. And then I haven't actually heard it, but. Um, Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Rap uh, replied to a tweet I did about it and he was saying like um, I think it's going to be on their podcast I haven't heard it but uh, something like you know there's there's clubs in Europe that basically rely on the Premier League Mm. being as affluent as it is because of selling players to the Premier League for probably inflated prices um, and you know making their money that way and obviously that is going to be if not wiped out it's going to be reduced so all of a sudden, um, sort of, I suppose, taking it full circle to what we were talking about a little bit about, you know, losing revenue from playing behind closed doors and if they have to pay back TV money, that's not just affecting the Premier League. That's probably affecting clubs around yeah. uh, the rest of Europe as well. And England. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Lower levels in England. I mean, Liverpool have had success from buying players from from relegated clubs in the last, uh, sort of recently, last few years, Robertson, Wijnaldum and um, Shakiri, that's all money that's going out of the Premier League, even before you get to like Salah and Allison and things like that. So um, transfer fees coming down or across the board is, is sort of bad news for, um, for for quite a lot of clubs and not just the um, sort of the big clubs. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit downer to end on, but there we are. That's, <laughs> that's where we are, I think. I think it's true, though. I think the, the I think the bubble might have just burst with the transfer market. I think it might have just burst. I cannot. I can, if so, if you take the scenario that the whole of next season might be played behind closed doors, I'm not sure we'll ever see a 50 million transfer for the next two seasons. It just doesn't make any sense. You can only no. your assets are there and valued. And if suddenly they've lost 75% of the value, you're just going to say, well, sorry, we can't. I'm not selling you yeah. for that. I'm not selling you for that. I'd rather keep you. Um, and if we're playing the Champions League behind closed doors, maybe win that with these players than take the financial hit of losing 75% of your value, Kilian or Raheem yeah. or <laughs> Mohamed yeah. or Jaden in particular. Um, so. Yeah. I- Sorry, I was just going to say, it has sort of made me wonder if um, in this now, this new sort of climate, if Liverpool would be more inclined to accept an offer from Real Madrid, let's say, for Salah or Mane, if it came in, than they would have been. Because if Madrid put 100 million on the table, they'd yeah, probably maybe, be a bit yeah. foolish to turn it down, you know, which they which they, they might have done before. So, um, you know, I'm sure they're not actively looking to sell those players, but I think big bids are going to carry more weight than they might have done before this all started. That's very true. That is very true. And Manchester City and those kind of teams, maybe Newcastle, can be in a position where their money is now worth a lot more because it's not based on any kind of revenue stream. It's just pure... State funded, yeah, <laughs> Sab- yeah. sabotage. Um, no, <laughs> it's but but that's true, bees. Because if if you're doing a economic assessment of your club and a and a bid comes in and say to say players are going for twenty million on average, and then uh, PSG or Man City rock up on. Probably not Man City because of league terms, but a team rocked up with a hundred million pound bid for a Salah or Man. It just makes economic sense to take it because you you might not ever get anywhere near that for the three years or something, and and fans yeah. and fans would rightly say no, <laughs> no, we need that quality because if we're going to play behind closed doors, we may as well win that as well. It's just going to be such a interesting. Relationship and oh, interesting. Nice one. Mobile. Ending the podcast with a gig. It's Absolutely, right? we're finishing there. That is a brilliant end point. Can you, can you name the artist in the song, Chris? It wasn't structured, mate. It was. Uh, <laughs> it's a Spurs fan ringing me, actually. Um, always kind of that. No, that'll be the callback now, won't it? Amazing. Cheers, boys. Did that finish <laughs> on, on the right note? Got to, got to end there, surely. Yeah. <laughs> C sharp. Yeah. It was. Um, yeah, it's a Spurs fan pestering that. Ruining <laughs> our podcast. Always. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. They'll just take anything, won't they?